Well, they're taking their seats. If you have your Bibles, take it out and turn it to Genesis chapter 2. I tell you, I've been trying ever since the children's message to regain my composure. I wish you could see the kids from my angle. When, when Pam looks at the group of kids and says, kids, do you know the gift that keeps on giving? And one of the little boys, I won't say who, says, rabbits? Uh, my goodness. <laughs> Had a lot of good conversations over Christmas break. Uh, man, never, never a dull moment. We're going to be a, a couple minutes for, uh, before we blast it up there. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll open up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, that we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. Lord, thank you as the choir sang that we do all of these things in remembrance of you. Lord, most of all, thank you that you are worth remembering. Lord, I'm so glad that we do not serve a Savior who uh, died and then stayed dead. But, Lord, we serve a risen Savior who we remember his death because in his death he defeated death. And now he is dead no more, but he's alive forever, reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And so, God, we thank you for everything that we have and we thank you for all the blessings that you give us on a daily basis. And, God, I pray that during this next appointed time, Lord, that you would speak through me. Lord, I pray that you would feed your people. And God, I pray that as we begin to embark on a journey through your word, Lord, that you would be with us every step of the way. I pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts. And God, I pray that we would leave here being more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to do something that I try not to do very often. And I'm going to... um, I'm going to vent on you for about two minutes, but the good news is, is that you guys didn't do anything wrong. And so I'm just going to give you a couple pet peeves that I have about the, uh, the church in general. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about we as an American church, the way that we go about doing things. And uh, like I said, you can, you can put your guard down because you haven't done anything wrong. I'm just going to get me to share my heart with you for a minute. I was, um, I grew up in the church. I grew up, uh, going to church. From the second that I could remember, I remember uh, a, a scary-looking nursery. I remember all of the, the nursery workers, some of which I thought were scary also. All the way up until now, I've been going to church, and I haven't missed a lot of Sundays in between. And I'll tell you one thing that the church does that I don't even think the church realizes, and that is that we, we uphold this book. We uphold the Scriptures. But sometimes we don't think about the way that we teach the scriptures to our detriment. And so you probably very much like me are, are, are or were very vaguely familiar with this book. I'll tell you what happened. Let me give you a little background before I go forward. If you're here and you don't know what we're getting ready to do, today is day one. We're going to go through the whole Bible. It's going to take us about a year and a half to two years, and we're going to go on a Hollywood Homes tour of the Bible. And you say, what does that mean? If you've ever been to Hollywood, I haven't, but I've seen it on TV. Uh, You get on this big double-decker bus. You cruise down the, the main road where all the stars live, and you look to your left. There's Tom Cruise's house. There's uh, Jennifer Aniston's house, and you're, you keep going down the road. And the, the bus driver tells you where all of these people live. And every once in a while, they may stop the car and let you get out and look around for a little while. But you don't get to go in any of the medicine cabinets. You don't get to go in any of their closets. You don't get to peek in the nightstand. None of those things. It's a, it's a quick tour down the road. Now, there are men and women of God who have spent their whole life studying this book. 
and they have barely scratched the surface. This book is so incredibly deep. But over the next two, two years, year and a half, however long it takes us, we are going to go fast through the scriptures. And the main point of what we're going to do is I want you to realize that this thing right here is one book. It tells one story and it is the most amazing book that you will ever read in your life. And one of the tragedies of the church is that we sometimes as a church make this most fascinating book in the world boring for people. And I think that's one of the biggest sins that we could ever commit is to make God's word that he gave us boring. You see, God is the greatest story writer in the world, and he crafted a true story and gave it to us in this book. And there is not a, well, I was going to say there's not a boring page in it, but you'll see every once in a while he gets the number and things and uh, it gets a little out of control. But there is not a boring story in this book that doesn't fit perfectly together with something else to tell a grand story. And so what I want to do is I want I want you to... To know that as a church, we're going to go through this Hollywood Homes tour and we're going to be cruising through scripture at a quick pace. And there's going to be times where I tell you, look over here, there's something that you'll want to go back and study. And then there are other times I'm going to say, look over here, there's something that I want you to know. And then every once in a while we'll stop the bus and we'll get off and we'll look at something absolutely incredible. And we'll spend a little bit of time on it. But then it's, hey guys, get back on the bus we're cruising forward again. Now, what's going to happen is that sometimes during the next year and a half, two years, you're going to be sick. You're going to go on vacation. Other things may happen and you'll miss Sundays. And what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to go to our church website and you're going to want to catch up. Here in about the next two weeks, we'll have uh, our sermons online. And so you won't be left out if you miss anything. Maybe we'll be going so fast, you may have not caught everything that we talked about. And you'll be able to go back and listen to it again if you can bear through it a second time. I think you think a lot of you sleep through it the first time. The second time, I can't imagine how many people would get put to sleep by it. So anyways, that's the plan for the next two years. And I want to tell you why I like doing this so much. I like doing it so much because I told you that I grew up in church. And when I was a teenager, I was a leader in our youth group. And sometimes I would get to teach our youth group. And then when I graduated from high school, I kept serving with the students and I got to teach the students a lot. And I realized now that I look back that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. See, I had a lot of pieces or a lot of dots and you may be in the same boat. You may have a lot of dots in scripture. And let me tell you what I mean by a dot. A normal church children's program looks like this. The kids show up on Sunday you teach them about Jesus, right? Because that's what we do in church. Then the next day, the kids, or the next Sunday, the kids show up to church. And what do we teach them about? We teach them about David and Goliath. David kills the giants. The next Sunday, what do we teach them about? Abraham. Abraham, man of God. Incredible. The, the father of our faith. And what do we do the next day? We teach them about Paul. And what do we do the next Sunday? We teach them about Adam and Eve. The next Sunday, we tell them Jesus is coming back. So wait a minute, what do you mean Jesus is coming back? Then the next Sunday, what do we teach them? It's Easter. So we walk them through all of the Easter passages. And so what we've done is we give our kids a lot of dots, but we never put them all together. And you may be in the same boat. I showed up to Bible college a frustrated individual, almost 
almost finished Bible college, a frustrated individual, because I would read through the scriptures and I would read a story like Cain and Abel. And I would throw my hands up in the air and and think, what in the world does this have to do with anything? One of the stories that frustrated me the most was the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, I would think the Tower of Babel. Okay, cool story. What in the world does it have to do with anything? No idea what it had to do with anything. And throw my hands up, I don't know. Then read another neat story. And then one time I heard a sermon. A guy preached on the transfiguration. So Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's transfigured. He preaches the sermon. And it wasn't a good preacher, by the way. Finished the sermon. And I thought, huh. If that's all there is to it, why even bother? And so you may be in the same boat that I was in. You have all of these dots. You have all of these stories. But you have no idea how they connect together and lead on and make a big story. And so what I want to jump into now is I want to to make another case that the Bible is one book and we should do it as a whole. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to work our way over to Revelation. So what I'm going to need you to do for this sermon is you're going to keep one hand in Genesis. And then you're going to keep one hand in Revelation the very end of Revelation, and we're going to bounce back and forth between the two. And then after we do that, we'll spend the bulk of our time in Genesis, and we'll end in Revelation again. Depending on how much time we have, we'll see how far we get to go today. But lastly, before we start, have you guys ever um, ever watched a, a CSI show or an NCIS show? I'm, I'm not going to scream sinner and repent or anything like that if you have but there's one characteristic that all these shows have that all of the csi ncis shows have that i want to to run by you you know the opening scene the scene where the the other show that you don't care about is on and it's ending but you watch the end of that show so you can see the opening scene of csi or ncis it's a show where a lot of action takes place the in the opening scene you're introduced to a lot of things you notice that sometimes that opening scene is two minutes sometimes it's five minutes and you never know how long it's going to last the reason is is because that opening scene is what we call the introduction during the introduction to csi ncis whatever show you like you learn all sorts of things you learn who the main characters are going to be you learn where the 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 show is going to take place and you learn what we call the plot and you also learn something that we call the problem you see each of those shows has a problem usually in those shows somebody's dead and they've got to figure out who why how when and where that person died and so you get all of these details in the first five minutes and then through the middle of the book, or excuse me, through the middle of the, the show, you get all of these details. That's where the drama unfolds. That's where you're introduced to, to the characters even more. And then at the end, you've got the last little segment that you always want to watch because it closes the whole thing up. You following me? Literature is just like that. You've got an introduction. You've got a body with all your main content. And then you have a conclusion. And this book is just like that. Genesis 1 through 11 is going to be your five-minute CSI introduction. And Revelation is going to tie the whole thing back together. Really neat. Let me ask you this. A lot of you girls, a lot of you ladies, excuse me, are into movies. A lot of you ladies like this movie called The Notebook, right? If you guys haven't seen it, you are blessed among men. And you are well pleased in God's sight that you've never had to sit through it. The Notebook is just this heart-wrenching movie. It's... It's awful. I never want to see it again. But all you ladies have seen it, and I'm so bad at giving illustrations that ladies understand that I use it. If How many of you ladies would, would show your husband the movie and start him out in the middle of the movie? 
You go to the scenes, you go to Redbox, you rent a movie, you bring it home, and you turn on the scene selection, and you put it on the middle scene, and then you stop it. Then you put it on the last scene, then you stop it. Then you rewind to the beginning, and you watch the beginning. How many of you would make your husband watch a movie like that? None of you. But that's the same thing that we do with this. We take God's word, and we go, hmm, what do I want to read today? And we open it up, and we read the middle. And then we think, hmm, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Let me try the end. Huh, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Why don't I understand this book? We go to the beginning and we say, hmm, okay, this is starting to make sense. But as we cruise on reading, we slowly get bored with some details that God starts to give. And we go, hmm, now let me try the middle again. And it doesn't work. You would never, in your wildest imagination, pick up a textbook and do the exact same thing. Never. If any of you are teachers, you start in the beginning, and then you build. You don't start a kid out learning trigonometry. You start him out with basic math, and you teach him lessons. Then he's going to use those building blocks until he gets to upper-level maths, right? That's the way I would do it, at least. But, but for some reason, we approach God's Word unlike we would any movie and unlike we would any other book. Some of you guys are might be Lord of the Rings geeks. You would never bring one of your friends over, watch Lord of the Rings 2, then watch Lord of the Rings 1, then watch Lord of the Rings 3, then watch The Hobbit. You'd never do that, ever, because that's not how you do it. You watch them, you watch any series in order. You start at the beginning and you work your way forward. That's the exact way this was meant to be. So let me make the case that this is one book, and then we'll jump back and we'll talk to, about Genesis more. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. In Genesis 1, you have the story of creation. In Genesis 2, you have Genesis 2, verse 4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight of good for food. Every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, that's important. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now go over to... Verse 18. I'll just go down one more verse. Chapter 3, verse 22. I misspoke. So he creates the garden. He creates the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he puts man in the garden with the tree of life. Chapter 3, verse 22 says... In chapter 3, man sins. But then in verse 22, it says... Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So let me set the stage for you. I got a little mixed up. God creates everything in seven days. And he takes man and he he makes him perfect and he puts him in the garden. And one of the focal points of the garden is the tree of life. You've got a couple great things about the garden. Number one, the most fascinating thing about the garden is that God is dwelling there with man. And number two, you have the tree of life here in the middle. Well, what happens is that man sins. And now God says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so you may think, how could God take something good away from man? Well, there was something special about this tree and that if man ate from it, he would do what? He would live forever. And so the worst thing that could ever happen to man is that once he gets in his sinful state, once he stretches out his hand and eats from the tree of life, or excuse me, eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we call that sin. Now man is in a sinful state. And so God does the best thing that he could do for man. And he takes away the tree of life because he doesn't want man to stretch out his hand to the tree of life, eat from it and live forever in a sinful condition. Following me? Now go over to Revelation chapter 2. Everything that you're flipping through doesn't mention the tree of life. But the tree of life, nonetheless, is incredibly important. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 says this to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I hear this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes what I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so scripture starts out with the tree of life. Man is in the garden and he's dwelling with God and there is a tree of life and man is going to live forever with God in the garden. But man sins. And then when he sins, God takes the tree of life away from him for a little while until what? Until the rest of this scripture, until God can deal with the sin problem. And then what does God want to do with the tree of life? It says to those who overcome, he'll give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Keep going in Revelation to Revelation 22. This is the apostle John has a view of heaven. He gets to see the new Jerusalem and this is how he describes it. Then this is Revelation 22 verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If that's not enough for the tree of life, listen to this. Verse 14, chapter 22, verse 14 says this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. 
Go down to verse 18. And this is how the book of Revelation closes. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. You see, Scripture starts. Scripture starts with a bookend of the tree of life. And way over here at the end of Scripture, you have another bookend, and it's the tree of life. See, the tree of life is a gift to us from God so that we can live forever. And it's given in the beginning, and then it's taken away because we messed up. All throughout the rest of Scripture, God is going to be telling you the story of how he is going to make things right, how he's going to prepare a way so that you once again can partake from the tree of life, but you're not ready for it yet. You see, the way that you are right now, you don't want to partake of the tree of life. But there's coming a time where God is going to give it back to us. And we're going to dwell with God and we're going to have the tree of life again. So, the the book starts with one thing and it ends with the exact same thing. Now go back to Genesis. We'll start in Genesis chapter 1. And we're not going to make it all the way through. I'm going to go ahead and warn you that I'm going to have to leave you with a cliffhanger for the sake of time. It's going to make some of you upset, but it's going to be good for us. It'll get you back here next week. Genesis chapter 1. If you're going to understand any book before we start Genesis 1, you've got to understand a couple things. You've got to understand who wrote the book, and you've got to understand who he wrote it to, right? If I wrote a love letter to my wife, and the mailman accidentally delivered it to your house, and you read it, Do you really think that I feel the same way about you that I do my wife? I was hoping that you would give a resounding no. Maybe some of you aren't sure. Now I feel uncomfortable. No, I'm the original author and I have an original audience in mind. And so if I write a love letter to my wife and I pour my heart out to her, the worst thing that could happen would be for it to go to Jimmy's house and Jimmy read it thinking I'm talking about him the whole time. Because those things that I'm saying are directly towards Jesse, right? My wife. Yes. Give me a yes. You guys are dead again. Give me a yes. Those things are for her. And so for Jimmy to take that letter and to apply all of those things between our relationship, that would be a bad thing. That would be, that would make for an awkward visit when I go to the hardware store. If he thought that I felt that way about him. But so many times in scripture, we look at scripture and whenever something is promised, we take that promise for ourselves. And so we as Americans are, are very often what I'll call promise stealers. We see something good promised to somebody and we take it and we keep it for ourselves. The truth is though, is that there's all sorts of great things that have been promised to you and we miss those and we try to take other people's promises instead. Let me give you an example. Whenever you graduate, whenever a teenager graduates from high school, no matter what their life is like, Somebody always gives them a plaque that's, and if you've done this, forgive me. Somebody always gives them a plaque from Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans for you to prosper, plans for you to have a hope and a future. And we try to apply that scripture to every single teenager, no matter what their circumstances, when they leave for college. If they're down in the dumps, that's what we give them. There's other scriptures that we give people. And it just sometimes feels like they don't fit. And that's going to be the the joy about this Bible study that we're going to go through. So often we get down in the dumps and somebody shows up and they say, 
God works all things together for the good of those who believe and are called according to his purpose. And maybe your life is just in the dumps and you think, yes, he does. But that's not a magic scripture that makes everything better. Right? That scripture fits within a particular context, right? That's not something where if we were to show up and we were to go into the hospital after something just horrible happened and we read that scripture and we just breeze right out, that person would think, nah, I don't think that's how that scripture was supposed to be used, right? But so often that's what we do with the scriptures. But these things were written in a particular context to a particular people. And when you go through the, the Bible like we're going to go through it, you'll learn the heart of God. You'll learn about the themes that God's working through. And you'll be able to see the big picture of what he's doing. And you'll be able to apply the scriptures much better. So Genesis chapter 1, Moses writes it. Moses writes the book of Genesis to a particular audience. The audience that Moses writes Genesis to has just been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Remember, Moses goes to Egypt. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh ends up, long story short, he lets the people go. They've been slaves for 400 years in the desert. They get out into the wilderness. One time, God calls Moses up onto the mountain. That's when we believe that Moses was given this book of Genesis. And Moses comes back down to the people. And he starts, and he gives them the book of Genesis. And it starts with an incredible theme. If you were a slave in Egypt, and you had just been rescued, what would you want more than anything else? You're a slave. You've been worked like a dog for 400 years. If I was in that shape, I'd want a nap. Maybe. I'd want a lazy boy to kick back in. I'd want some shade. I would want to rest. And watch how scripture starts. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the, the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. Day one, what do we have? Light, darkness. This is going to make sense. You may be thinking, this is elementary right now, but you bear with me, we're going somewhere. Day two says this, verse nine. Nope, verse... Six. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below from the expanse, excuse me, separate the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So what's he create on day two? He's got all this water. And he separates the water from the water. So he's got water down here. He's got water up here. And then in the middle, he has air, which we call heavens. In scripture, there's that word heaven is used a couple different times. You have, if, if you and I were playing catch with a baseball and we throw the ball to each other, we threw the ball through heaven. Then you have where the birds fly, where we can't exactly get. And you have all the way up to the planets. Those are called the heavens also. And then you have a, a grand heaven where God lives. And so there's three different ways that the scriptures use heaven. And so he makes, he separates waters from the waters. And then he creates the air in between them. Day three, 
Verse 9 says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. And so on day three, God creates dry land. And then he creates fruit trees and vegetables on that dry land. So you have three days that have happened. You've got light and darkness. You've got uh, an expanse. He creates water and water, and then there's air in between. And then on day three, he creates dry land. So right now you think, okay, things are going okay. If you were an Egyptian, excuse me, if you were an Israelite, you wouldn't think anything special at this point. But now let's go on to day four. This is where Moses writing to his original audience is going to make much more sense. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so God made the two lights, the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day. We call that the sun and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Day four, what does he do? He does something different. He's not just creating something new. Now in day one, he created light and darkness, right? He creates a stage on days one through three. You have to bear with me here. There's a There's a literary term called parallelism to the Israelites, right? You know what a parallel parallelogram or a a parallel line is? It's two equal lines that uh, that parallel each other. They're two straight lines, and they stay right next to each other. Well, what happens here is that day one, two, and three parallel day four, five, and six. Now watch what happens. Light and darkness is created on day one, and then on day four, he creates the sun and the moon to fill the light and the darkness. It's going to make more sense in a minute. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And so you see day one, he creates light and darkness. Day four, he creates the sun and the moon to fill the light and the darkness. Day two, he creates an expanse from the waters and he creates air. Day four, day five, what does he create? Sea monsters, fish, everything that lives in the water, and birds. So he creates water and air. And then on day five, remember the parallel? He creates water, excuse me, water, animals, and birds. Then let's keep going. Verse 24. Then God said, now let me just ask you a quick question. Use your, use your brains just for a second. What do you suspect he creates on day five? Something to fill the land, Maybe. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth creatures 
after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be good for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And so on day six, he fills the dry land with animals and ultimately man. This is where it starts to get good. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were complete in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God had completed his work on which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. And so on day seven, what does God do? He rests. Now, what's the funny thing about the number seven? Of course, in Scripture, it's the number of completion. But the interesting thing about the number seven, if you're going to have something called parallelism, is that day seven leaves us an extra day, right? See, in day one, two, and three, he created a stage. On days four, five, and six, he created actors to fill the stage. And now on day seven, God rests. And so the looming question in your mind, if you were an Israelite, is... What is going to happen on day eight? God rest. Who or what is going to fill God's rest? Remember, if you're a slave for 400 years, you want to rest. And you want to rest bad. Because you've been worked like a dog. And what greater place could you think of than to rest with God? And so what is day eight? Go ahead and put it up there. Next time, next time we'll cover day eight and uh, we'll talk, we'll journey through scripture and you'll see that something was created to rest with God. So as we come to the Lord's table today, just know that uh, Revelation chapter two says that to those who overcome, he's going to give the right to eat from the tree of life. He doesn't just say that anybody at all gets to eat from the tree of life. In the same way, not just anybody at all gets to take of the Lord's table. The Lord's table is for those believers in Jesus Christ who are in a good standing with him. We partake of the Lord's Supper proclaiming his death until he returns. And so if you're here and you've got any sort of business to do with God, if you've got anything to get right with him before taking the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to take some of this time as we prepare the table, take some of this time as we pass out the elements to do that business with God. It would be far better for you to let the plates pass you 
than to partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Paul says that for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you took of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And so we're going to come and we're going to get the table ready. We're going to pass out the elements. But now would be a good time to, to do some reflection. You see, not just anybody gets to take from the tree of life. And in the same manner, just because you come to church and just because you partake of the Lord's table does not mean that you will be in a good standing with Jesus Christ. You see, if you are in any sort of open, rebellious sin, you are not walking as a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is one of the reasons that we come to this table is so that we can reflect on our lives and we can make sure that we are in a good standing with Christ. It would be awful for you to fool yourself into thinking that just because you come to a place and just because you do a particular thing means that you're okay with God. And so today, uh, Brother Jack and I are going to get the table ready. And uh, if you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're in good standing with him, you are welcome to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. But let's take this next time while we prepare the elements to, uh, to, to do some reflection to get our hearts right before the Lord. The scriptures say this. The Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Brother Jack, would you pray for the bread? Scriptures say this in the same way. He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blood. Thank you for the new covenant. And thank you that you tell us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Lord, you also tell us that the blood and bulls of goats is not sufficient to forgive sin. You needed a perfect sacrifice. And so, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who willingly died for our sins and who willingly poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven. And so, God, as we partake of this cup, Lord, I pray that we would, uh, we would be in reverence of the blood of Jesus Christ and we would never take it lightly. And so, God, we thank you for that forgiveness of sins that we have. And, God, we pray that in doing this, uh, we would be proclaiming the, bleth, the death of your son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you guys would stand with us for our song of invitation, Jonathan and uh, Betsy are going to lead us. If uh, there's anything that uh, that you want to do during the invitation, if there's anything that you want to uh, to get right with God and make it public, you're welcome to do that. Uh, if you want to join fellowship with our church, you're welcome to do that also. Um, go ahead.
Well, before we go, I'd like to close us in prayer. I do want to tell you that uh, if today was a little more academic than you're used to, hold on. We're going somewhere. Okay? Just hold on tight. Don't uh, don't let the... It's not the way it's always been get to you. Just hang on just a little bit longer, and it's all going to fall into place. Uh, I would urge you, though, if you think, wait a minute, that's more like teaching than preaching. Uh, you come up with a good definition of each and share it with me, because I'm not sure the difference between the two most of the time. Uh, so hang on. We're going to go somewhere great. Listen, when somebody rides by a new house, I was talking with uh, Brother Mike. When they set the concrete for those cell phone towers, sometimes they dig 80-foot deep holes and they fill them with concrete and rebar. Nobody rides by a cell phone tower and goes, wow, look at the great foundation that's been laid. Only people like the big elaborate structures. Listen, before you can build any of those elaborate structures, you've got to have a good foundation. And this Genesis is going to be it. We are, we are building a solid foundation. Uh, and if you don't have it, you're doing nothing but building a deck of cards or a house of cards. And so, so stick with us. And uh, next week's going to be great. The cool thing about this Bible study, and I, the word cool has been way overused, awesome has been way overused, is it gets nothing but better. The more blocks you have, the better the story gets. And so my favorite thing to do, whether you believe me or not, is to teach the book of Leviticus. The most boring book there is to read in scripture. Once you do Genesis and Exodus right, Leviticus is the most fascinating book in scripture. I promise you. But it's going to take us about eight, nine weeks to get there. But hang on. And if your jaw doesn't hit the ground in the book of Leviticus... I'm, I'm, I'm weary of offering you all steak dinners, but if you're, if you're diligent in coming and you build the house the right way, if your jaw doesn't hit the ground in the book of Leviticus, I will, I will issue you a humble apology on my knees, guaranteed, but you got to stick with it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for coming. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the many blessings you give us. Lord, thank you for the Lord's table. And God, we pray that we would be a people who are eagerly proclaiming your death until your coming. God, we look forward into the day when you burst forth out of the eastern sky and you come back to get your saints. And so, God, I pray that we as a church would be found faithful. And I pray that we as individuals would be found ready. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you for coming.